that in my life situation as a reminder um, for what and how we should be operating as believers. Um, and so, yeah, the, uh, you might be wondering, okay, well, then why are we in numbers? Um, Old Testament is weird. Uh, most people like to say in the New Testament, it's a little more comfortable. Um, I love this story in numbers because I think it's one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament. Um, it's really compelling for me to read. I love when you can see Jesus in the Old Testament, um, when you can see the gospel, a picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. Um, and so I want to pray for us real quick, and we're going to get into it. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for uh, Sunday mornings. Um, I thank you that we can gather together as a church and as a family, um, and we can just remember how great the gospel is, how good the news is, um, that we know you, that you are our Lord and our Savior, our friend. Um, I pray for uh, just all of us as we get into your word this morning, um, as we talk about the idea of um, talking to the people about Jesus and what that looks like, um, why we're meant to do it. Um, I don't know how that hits people. Um, you can probably guess in some situations, God, but um, yeah, I pray that that as we come to your word, God, that we wouldn't um, come in with, we'd come in with, it with, with an obedient heart, that we'd look at it um, from a willingness to do what you want us to do with our lives, um, whether that is scary or encouraging or whatever else. And so, um, God, we pray that you'd be glorified this morning in the reading of your word um, and in our time together. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Um, so let's get to it. Uh, Numbers 21, verse 4. Uh, I'm just going to go reread it again because it's pretty short. Um, it says this, From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go round the land of Edom. Also, you'll notice that I don't have any slides because I didn't bring any. Um, again, you're, it's the substitute substitute guy, like poorly prepared. Um, but yeah, we're going to have to do it old school. So if you have one of these, we'll be reading it, or your phone. That's, if you want to be reading along, that's how you got to do it. Um, from Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go round the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Um, this is our story. This, is, this, is, this story uh, paints a picture of the world we live in. Um, the nation of Israel, if you uh, know the story of the Exodus, um, were in Egypt. They're God's chosen people, people of promise, um, Abraham's covenant, um, and they've uh, they're wandering in the wilderness at this point. Um, and kind of in the timeline of that Exodus story, they have made their way all the way to the promised land, had come to the point of wanting to enter the promised land. Um, they had sent scouts into the promised land. Had come and those scouts came back with a report, um, mostly negative. Two people were like faith-filled. Let's go take it. 
It's God's promise for us. It's a wonderful place. Um, and everyone else, their report was fearful, faithless, and the nation of Israel like, was like, we don't, we're scared, we don't want to do this. And so God had sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years. And so where we find the nation of Israel right now is in the 39th year of those 40 years wandering. Just to kind of paint the picture for you. And so what we see is we see the nation of Israel sinning. Um, they admit to it. Um, they get impatient with God, and then they say this to God and to Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. If you've read Exodus numbers from these early books, this story is familiar because the nation of Israel says this exact thing multiple times to Moses and to God. And it's funny because God sent the nation of Israel back into the wilderness so that the generation that didn't believe would not inherit the promised land, and then the next generation would. And so the people that are complaining like this are sinning in the same ways their father sinned. They're accusing God of bringing them out of Israel or Egypt to die in the wilderness, which is a pretty bold accusation, if you think about it. Um, and then they complain to God about how there is no food and no water, and in the same breath, actually admit that there is food, but we just don't like it. Which, when you think about, like, we laugh about it, but isn't that how we treat God, <laughs> like, all the time? Um, we have hearts that are sinful, that are impatient, distrusting, accusatory, and ungrateful. In a lot of ways, we just sin the same way that we've always sinned. So what does the Lord do? The Lord sends fiery serpents among the people. They bite the people, and people in Israel start dying. God's response was judgment, as is his response to sin. God hates sin. God does not like sin. God punishes sin. And that's a hard reality, but it's true. Because God's perfect and God's holy. In a lot of ways, we struggle with that idea. But... Um, but we, we need a God who, who does that, who, who, hates, who hates sin and responds that way. And when he does, Israel's response to that is confession, like immediately. We sinned, we messed up, and we need Moses, you to do something for us because this is not a good situation. Israel recognizes their need for confession, for reconciliation, and for deliverance. So the Lord makes a way with the bronze serpent. He instructs Moses to, build, to make the serpent, to raise it up on a pole. Anyone who looks at the serpent in faith would be healed and would live and be able to inherit the promised land. And I love it because it's such a wonderful picture of the gospel. I, I've had the gospel explained to me in like four points, and I'm just going to kind of go through them here because I feel it's helpful for us to kind of see this as a picture. The truths, what all of the Bible teaches, is firstly that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. And we see this in the story because God loves Israel. They're, they are his chosen people. They're a people of promise, of covenant. They're people he desires to bless and prosper. But we are sinful. And because of our sin, we're separated from God, and we cannot experience his love and his plan in our lives. And we see this in the story again. On the very doorstep of the promised land, Israel sins. And so they too can't experience the beauty and bounty of God's promised land. But God has made a way for us. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. Through him alone, we can know God personally and experience his love and plan. Again, in the story, God makes a way. 
there's the bronze serpent. And it was the only way for those who had been bit to be healed and reconciled to God, to be able to enter the promised land. In fact, Jesus actually brings this exact story up in John chapter 3, um, when he's talking to Nicodemus. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that anyone who looks upon him would believe and have eternal life. And then the next thing he says is probably the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Like this exact story is the one Jesus, like, basically paints the whole God's plan for love for the world with. He brings this story up as an example. But, fourthly and finally, we all must individually respond and receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Then we can know God personally and experience his love and plan. The thing with this story is that it's not enough that God like, made away with the serpent, that the serpent exists somewhere. But one who had been bitten had to come to look on it, to believe, and then they would be healed. There's a part of it that requires us to respond, to be reconciled to God. One thing, there's two, there's two things from this passage that I want to stick away from this morning. And the first is that we are meant to be reconciled to God. Um, and I know it's mentioned we're going to talk about evangelism, and we're going to get there at the end. But firstly, we're meant to be reconciled to God. Um, I was thinking about the idea of reconciliation this week um, and what it means. Because I think it's one of those words that we kind of just like put in a pot with like forgiveness and salvation and like all these other kind of like Christian words and they all kind of mean the same thing to us. And, and I don't think they do. I mean, they all have like, they all carry their own power in a lot of ways. Specifically, the idea of reconciliation, I think, um, is important. It's a word I've been using. I'm going to be using it all morning long. And the reason why is because reconciliation is the idea of restoring a right relationship. Like a relationship that has been broken is, is made new, right, and whole again. And so in a lot of ways, reconciliation is forgiveness, but it's more than forgiveness. Um, reconciliation is something that is very difficult. Like if you think in your own life of a situation where you've needed reconciliation, um, you, you know what that process looks like. You know the amount of humility that's required, um, listening, understanding, owning up to your own piece of the brokenness, right? The, 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 the mistakes you made, and the, um, being able to forgive the other person for the mistakes they've made, and even the idea of atonement, like actually making it right. Like all, all of these are the ingredients for reconciliation to happen. And I know we live in Northern Ireland. Um, and I, I think we benefit a lot from living in this place because reconciliation is something that I think we're all sensitive to, um, coming out of like, the idea of the troubles and just like the cultural reconciliation that like, is happening, like it's in process, right? But I think, I think the, difficult, the difficulty um, and work that is required for reconciliation to happen, we know maybe more keenly than most because of, of where we live. Um, I don't know if you've ever done one of those like black cab tours in the city where they kind of like do like troubles tour. And I've talked to some people who are like, it's kind of stupid that we even like commercialize that anyway. And that may be true. But we, I've taken some American friends that have visited on those trips and they're great. You kind of are able to kind of quickly get a bit of a picture for what it looks like. 
but I, I feel like they're a little incomplete. I don't want to say watered down, but they're kind of sanitized. Like the, your tour guide is like, this is this and this is this, and they try to remain like, look, I, they don't really let you know kind of what side they're on or anything. They just kind of like, this happened here and this happened here and here's a mural and there you go. And so you get to this part where there's the peace wall and you have all these tourists who have write things like, give peace a chance. And, and it's, like, it's like it's so simple. Like, why can't you get over it? And people who live here know this, like, it's not simple. I've taken another tour, which was a walking tour, up the Falls Road and back down the Shankle Road. And this tour, our guide, one of our guides was an ex-IRA man who had been in prison, who had done things that he regretted, he said. But it was very much a biased perspective as we walked up the Falls Road. And then we went through the gate and went down the Shankle Road. We had a guy who, I don't know if he was in a paramilitary or not, very loyalist, though, and gave us the other biased perspective. And both of them talked about how reconciliation is necessary, but that tour was so much better because, like as an American kind of on the outside, I'm able to understand what's required for reconciliation to happen. Like the, the, just the, the hurts, the baggage, the understanding, the miscommunication, like all of it, that's all mixed in there together. Here's the thing about our reconciliation to God, though. That's not how it works. Our broken relationship is our fault only. There's nothing God needs to apologize for. There's nothing he needs to do to make anything right. He didn't do anything wrong for us to have a broken relationship with him. But here's the other fascinating and just glorious thing about the gospel, is that everything that is required for reconciliation to happen between us and God, God did. Think about that. God did... We're the wrongdoers. We're the ones that should come back. Sorry. We're the ones that should be begging for forgiveness. We're the ones that should be doing anything. Is there anything I can do to make it right? But God did all that. God was the one that, Jesus was the one that humbled himself and came down to earth and lived life, died death on the cross. Jesus was the one that made atonement for our sins so we, we wouldn't even have to do that. And all we have to do is respond in faith. Isn't that, a fact? Isn't that an incredible thing? And so the invitation for all of us is to be reconciled to God. I want to return back to the story in Numbers, though, and I want to put us into the situation. Um, I want to use what I will call holy imagination, if you will. I want you to try to put yourself in, in, like, in the camp, right, in the nation of Israel at this time. At this time, historians say, think, that the nation of Israel was about two million men. So, I'm no maths teacher, but I would say it's probably safe to assume four or five million people in the nation of Israel. It's a lot of people. So where are you in this just huge mass of people? Now imagine you've been bitten by a snake. And somewhere there's this bronze serpent you're supposed to go find. How are you going to get there? What are you going to do? Like, hope, like maybe, maybe conveniently, it's just next door. And you can be like, oh, great, there it is. I'm good. I'm healed. But chances are you're probably not. So you can try to get there yourself, which will be really difficult. Because if you've been bitten by a snake, you're probably swelling and feverish, and fatigued, and vomiting, and dying. And it's hard to get anywhere when you're in that state. 
So, what does salvation look like? For you to be healed, one of two things needs to happen. You need to be brought to the serpent, or the serpent needs to be brought to you. You guys see kind of what's necessary here? It's evangelism. It's someone, it's someone bringing Jesus to someone. It's someone bringing someone to Jesus. Often we think about the gospel as a personal, God and us, one-on-one relationship. And it's not a wrong thing to do, but we can come, become preoccupied with it. But the Bible hardly talks about the gospel as, like a, as a one-on-one thing. It's like God and his people, God in the world. It's collective. It's communal. God doesn't make a way for a select few Israelites who have been bitten, but he makes a way for all of them. And there was a burden on those that had been reconciled to bring others to the snake. So, we're meant to be reconciled, but we are also meant to be reconcilers. It, is the, it was the responsibility of those who either were not bitten healthy or who had been healed to, to help those who had been bitten. That's necessary. Or, we, they, you kind of just condemn them to death. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is 2 Corinthians 5. Um, I don't know if you have like, like a passage where just like God taught you just like a super profound lesson and you've never forgotten it. Um, one of those things where I had a poignant moment in your life whether well, it was super encouraging or super convicting, but it just like has always it's like stayed with you forever. Um, this is one of those ones for me because for the longest time in my own life, my relationship with evangelism was not very good. Um, I, I grew up going to church. I grew up kind of within that culture. But as a person, I'm very fearful of public embarrassment, of, of taking any sort of risks <laughs> with like relationships or anything like that. And, and inherently, talking to people about Jesus is a risky venture. Um, and so I would do things like, uh, that's a, I'm not gifted in that. So those that are gifted, like, good luck, Godspeed, you do that. Um, I'm going to do things I'm good at, like reading the Bible and studying the Bible and da 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 like, you know, kind of all, all my stuff. Um, and I was, I mean, just hiding behind all that stuff because I was like, I don't want to do it. Like, all, like deep down in my heart, they just, I don't want to do it was where I was coming from with it. And God used this passage in 2 Corinthians to be like, hey, look, uh, you have to. Um, and it was just super convicting for me. Um, and I'm going to share with you why. If you turn or have a phone, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 14. And the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. He's talking about his ministry. And he's talking about why he shares the gospel with people. Here's what he says. Starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. <clears throat> Paul starts by saying the love of Christ controls us. Um, in other versions, it says the love of Christ compels us. Um, and he's compelled by God's love because of a conclusion that he's made in his life. And that conclusion is that Jesus died, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him. You see, the danger about us solely focusing on our personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with God is that there's a temptation for us to live, to continue to live only for ourselves. Because we're only concerned about my relationship with God and where I'm at with God and how's my relationship with God and am I reading the Bible or praying or doing this, that, and the other thing. And it causes us to be oblivious to the realities, the spiritual reality of the world around us in that there's lots of people that don't know Jesus. And Paul says that we live for Christ in verse 16. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say, from now on, therefore, his like line of thinking, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. To regard someone according to the flesh means regarding someone according to worldly standards. Kind of like a Bible term that like doesn't make any sense when you read it. So there's the explanation. It's to look at someone in terms of the world, to evaluate someone by worldly values. And so when Paul talks about having thought that way about Christ, there was a time in Paul's life where he looked at Jesus and saw a man who was a false teacher, presumably. He probably saw him and his death on the cross as confirmation that this guy was, wasn't the real deal. And it wasn't until Paul experienced and encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus that he finally believed and regarded Christ according to the Spirit. You see, we do this all the time where we regard people according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. Paul says that as new creations, because we are now different, we need to think differently about other people. So I'll ask us a question for us to consider. When you look at others, what do you see? Do you see their money and their success? Do you see their problems, their broken marriage, their lost job? Do you see their happiness, the clothes they wear, the car they drive, the house they live in? How do you look at your neighbor? How do you look at your coworkers, your family? How do you look at your spouse, your significant other? As I was thinking about this, um, two people came to mind. Elon Musk, James, James is number one fan, um, and Jeff Bezos. And when I see them, I see wealth, and I see ingenuity, and I see inventiveness, passion, drivenness. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff you see when you see them. According to the flesh, we may idolize them for the things they've accomplished and the stuff that they have. According to the flesh, we may vilify them for those very same reasons. 
But the thing of it is, according to the Spirit, the child of God that doesn't have two pennies in their pocket is closer to heaven than the two of them will ever be in this space race they're doing. Right? Like, if you think I've thought about that? Like, it's, it's, we think of people differently when we think of them according to the Spirit. Paul says that when we think of people according to the Spirit, it compels us to do something different. In verse 18, he says, all this is from God. I'm going to pause right there. Obviously, all of Scripture is from God. But if Scripture itself is telling you right now what I'm saying is from God, it might be worth our while to pay extra special attention to it. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the part that really convicted me. Not the ambassador's part. Well, I think you might be familiar with that. You might have heard that verse before. But one word in this really stuck out to me. And it's how, God, it's, just, it's how God changed my heart on evangelism. Look what Paul says. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and is the word, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He repeats himself in verse 19. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. There are two things that happened in your life when you responded to the work of the gospel. You were reconciled to God, and God gave you the message and ministry of reconciliation. Paul moves on and says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. There's a book I read once called The Finishers. Um, It's by a guy named Roger Hershey. You probably haven't heard of it. Um, But he kind of makes the case for how our generation, this generation of people in the world, has the potential to accomplish the Great Commission, meaning the uh, taking of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation all over the world, right, to the ends of the earth. Um, And even today, there's still unreached people groups, languages the Bible hasn't been translated in, the gospel's never been shared in, um, but, but with technology, with globalization, with the world just getting smaller and smaller, like we have the potential as a generation to be the ones to see the Great Commission accomplished, which is a pretty crazy thought when you think about that Jesus promises to come back once that's done. Um, so there you go. But one of the things he says in the book that was really compelling to me is that it has always been God's plan for the people of God to take the message of the gospel and the good news of it to the world. And specifically, he says, we are God's plan A, and there is no plan B. Meaning, if we don't do it, it will not be done. And if you look at the history of the church and the history of missions, there are times when we have done a really good job of moving the gospel forward, and there are times when nothing's happened. But God has just waited for, the people, for his people to become obedient again and do it again. He's not done something else. And it's been God's plan forever. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that God chose the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the nations, to glorify his name among the nations. The promised land that he gave to Israel 
was at the crux of the world at that time, connecting three continents. Israel would always be in among the nations in that place. But throughout Israel's history, they continually failed at glorifying God's name in the world. And so God had them conquered and exiled. And only then did Israel begin to go out into the world and, and repent and believe and follow God and therefore glorify him in among the nations. If you read the story of Daniel in the book of Daniel, it's a really good example of how that began to happen. And then Jesus comes, and he lives, and he dies, and he rises again on the third day. And what does he say to his disciples before he leaves? Go now, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I am with you always to the very end of the age. In Acts, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the early church is established in Jerusalem, and they become complacent, and they don't go to the ends of the earth, and persecution happens, and they begin to move out, move to different places. To the Jerusalems, I mean to the Judeas and the Samarias, like the surrounding area. And they become complacent, and more persecution happens, and then they go further. This has always been God's work, God's plan for the reconciliation of the world. So what? What's kind of the point? What's our application of this? Well, I'll return to the first bit. The first takeaway from all this is that we're meant to be reconciled to God. And if you're here this morning and you're not reconciled, you're snake bit, and you're hurting, and you're broken, Jesus is for you. And all we need to do to be reconciled to God is look to Jesus and believe and respond to that. And if that's you this morning, I encourage you to do that. Trust Jesus. For those of us who, who are followers of Jesus, being reconciled means remembering and living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Like, when was the last time the gospel really fascinated you? When was the last time you marveled at it? How good, great, and amazing a gift it is that, that God loves us and wants to have a, like a relationship with us did everything necessary to make that happen. But secondly, we're meant to be reconcilers. In a lot of ways, and it's going to be kind of... In a lot of ways, we, we live as if we've been healed of a snake bite, and then we're just hanging out with other people that got healed of a snake bite, and like drinking coffee, and totally oblivious to the fact that there are people dying all around us. Some of us recognize there's a need, and they're like, hey, you know, someone should do something about that. I'm really glad that I go to a church that has a pastor that does that, or this person does that, or I support this missionary that does that, and so, like, this is that's me doing my part. But we're meant to be reconcilers. We're meant to bring people to Jesus. I love our church. I love Village. I, I mean, Lauren and I come to Village because of Village's heart for sharing the gospel in the city. I love being part of a church planning church that wants to plant more churches. Um, 
because it comes from a desire and a passion and a motivation to see the gospel move forward and go into the city. I even love that we call our, like, our small groups like missional communities. Like in the name, it is implied that we are meant to, as like a group of people, as a community of friends, to do, to do what we can, take the gospel to other people or to welcome people in and show them Jesus. And our MCs are starting up this week. If you're not involved, get involved. Hey. Um, but you know, like, it's, it's, it's part of our church's DNA. But in the day-to-day of like going to work and going to school and dropping our kids off and whatever else, I wonder how often we look at the people around us and have a heart that is just motivated and compelled and broken and grieving the fact that people around us don't know Jesus. Being a reconciler is a responsibility. And if you're like feeling guilty about it this morning, I was praying on my walk, and I was like, I don't want this to be like a guilt trip for people. But at the same time, like, God tells us to do it. And if we feel guilty about not doing it, it's because we're being disobedient. So what does obedience look like? What, is it, what does a next step look like to do that? There is a responsibility aspect to it. But there's a joy to it. And that comes from being reconciled. That comes from marveling and understanding and appreciating and loving the gospel and Jesus. Because to tell the people about that isn't a burden. It's a joy. I would not be doing anyone any favors if I didn't quote C.S. Lewis in a, in a sermon. So here we go. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book Reflections on the Psalm, says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely uh, expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. Or she. To come suddenly at the turn of a road upon a mountain valley of unexpected grandeur. And then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in a ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. What a tragedy. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the very same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So my encouragement for us as a church, and it is an encouragement, it's not a correction, it's not like a shame on us for not doing this, but it's like, let's do it better, is that I want us to be reconciled, to understand what that means, to appreciate it, to treasure it, but to be reconcilers. And so when you think about the people in your life, what does it look like to view them according to the Spirit? And I encourage you to pray about what God would have you do to either bring them to Jesus or to bring Jesus to them. We're going to have communion now. Um, This table is a representation of what the gospel is. Um, 
we have the bread that represents the body that was broken, Jesus' body that was broken. We have the, the cup, the wine, and the juice. Wine's the juice. The juice is the one that doesn't look like wine. Um, of Jesus' blood that was spilled. This is the cost of reconciliation. This is how hard it is. It required everything of Christ, up to his, like, including his life. And so we're going to do communion now. We're going to come, we're going to take the elements, we're going to go back to our seats. I think James is going to play while that's happening. Just one person from each bell will come and take it back for, you know, whoever you're sitting with. But as you do, I want you to remember and appreciate and just thank God for how amazing the, the gospel is, for what he's done. And I want you to picture what it would look like for us to have twice as many cups on this table next year because people are coming to know Jesus. I want to pray for us real quick, and then we'll take the elements. God, you, you're an amazing God. You're a loving God. And it is amazing how much you love us. Thank you, thank you for how much, just for doing everything for doing all that is required for us to have a right relationship with you. God, I pray that you would help us be reconciled to you. God, for people who aren't in this room or who are in this room who don't know you yet, who don't follow you, God, I pray that they'd be reconciled to you. Like Paul says, like, I'm, I, we help us to implore them to be reconciled to God. God, for us that, that do know you and follow you, Help us to treasure it. Forgive us um, for not viewing people according to the Spirit and instead just for negligent or unaware of the spiritual realities around us. God, whatever courage and hope and compassion and empathy we need to be compelled to share the gospel with our friends and our family and our coworkers. Give it to us. Thank you so much for your word this morning. In your name we pray, amen.